You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Just got back the other day from the the, uh, flight from Cape Town. I had two learnings that I picked up from that long travel. And the the first was that people have a lot of rules for you and not all of them make sense and you don't actually have to follow all of them. Remember the, the uh, okay. lady? Like, what do you mean? The lady that was trying to tell you you couldn't bring on the bag. Oh, yeah, I had this, I had a bag with me that I was planning to carry on. And that, that you've traveled with before, that we traveled to always. get there with. Yes, obviously. Yeah, I'm going home from Cape Town. We're in Cape Town, I'm going home. On, on the same airline. Same airline. Right. No, I don't know, you can't. Yeah, that was like, uh, you well, I brought it. I I carried it on on the way here. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, and now I got to check it. Yeah, that was ridiculous. So we just kind of set it down, and we're like, oh, okay, we'll we'll just uh, oh, yeah, we'll figure out another plan. You were, she was like, no, you got to check it. You got to check it. And and we're both sitting there like, we're not going to check. We're not going to fly twenty five hours in the air, get home, and then wait for hours and hours for my bag to show up on that little carousel. Yeah, if it, 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 it was a little carry on back. It was a little carry on. Carry on. And so that was so funny because she's sitting there telling us, well, you got to check it. You got to check it. You got to check it. And then you grab it out of my hands and you go, that's fine. We'll give it back to our guy. You made up an imaginary guy that would yeah. solve it for us. And we just walked away because it was carry on. We didn't need to check yeah. out there. And she, she was noticing us and walking away i think she was eyeballing us oh uh, like, yeah but place. we just walked that right onto we the plane we just walked away it, it was, so, so you're what's your learning what's your okay but but well that's one learning which is if if there's a stupid rule that you don't have to follow don't follow it i agree with that you do not have to follow stupid rules the the other learning i had was pay the money okay what do you mean by that well so i was i was flying first class which you you love giving you problems about but i yeah, i was like because i can't i like afford it so <laughs> so, so funny. i i well okay so i i'm flying first class and, and get, getting into the first class lounge and you decided to just pay the money the the daily fee that oh they, yeah that they were trying to talk you out fee. enough they were trying to talk you out of doing that yeah, which it was like well 150 bucks or whatever and they're acting like are you going to need to talk to the bank? Or you, <laughs> do you need a co-sign? Yeah. They were like, we'll give you a couple of days to think it over. <laughs> it is not refundable. <laughs> they were being really weird about it. Like, now I'm good. It's like, take my money. Let me go get my free Coke or whatever. Yeah. Pay the money. Uh, it was a better experience. So, so this, I want to distill this knowledge into wisdom here. When you say pay the money, is that pay the money? to buy luxury experiences while you're traveling internationally or is this a broader lesson that well i i was it was narrow it was that that it was pay the money for the first class lounge that was where i started yeah i guess if you want to broaden it out feel free maybe maybe we can i don't know i'll i'll let you know if i find the the branches of that thought (laughs) (laughs) go with it (laughs) well we had a great episode today talking with spencer clavin He's a scholar, writer, and podcaster who's harbored a lifelong devotion to the great works and principles of Western culture. After studying Greek and Latin as an undergraduate at Yale, he spent five years at Oxford University to earn his doctorate in ancient Greek literature. Now, he's an editor at the Claremont Institute. He's written for many outlets, The Atlantic, Los Angeles Times, City Journal, Newsweek, Claremont Review of Books, The Federalist, and The Daily Wire. His most recent work sounded the alarm on the cultural decline of the Western world, titled How to Save the West Ancient Wisdoms for Five Modern Crises. Spencer's deep understanding of the roots of Western civilization make him a trustworthy and knowledgeable guide for navigating our evolving culture and what we can do to help. His analysis situation is pretty dire, but every crisis we face today, we faced and surmounted before. We talked about those five crises that threaten the fabric of our civilization. Aristotle's lasting influence on modern decision-making, the pseudo-religious tendencies of Stoicism, and what the American church can do to attract modern men. It was a great conversation. This is a topic that is important, it is relevant, and it's 
a real treat to listen to someone who is as knowledgeable and wise as Spencer. He really knows his stuff. And if you stick around, you're going to learn something. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Spencer. Hey there. Great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. And today's a wonderful day because Sean and I get to do something that is a hobby of ours uh, with a true professional, and that is criticize the world. <laughs> that's right, and you know, and that's so why everything we to do is complain. We love it. Well, yes, and that's why we exclusively on the podcast have people who only have their PhDs in in Greek literature. So, uh, you know, we we only that's talk wonderful. to those those folks. <laughs> have you made it through all of us? Uh, yet? Yeah, I think, yeah, you, I think you're in four or five, bunch, right? You know? Right, right. How did you get interested in focusing on that line of study? You know, it's really just a personal connection that I've always had. Weirdly, I grew up in a house filled with books, which was, it just made me a very lucky guy. I didn't know how lucky I was until I went out into the world. And there has always been something about classical literature generally, not just the Greeks, whom I ended up kind of specializing in, but, you know, uh, Aquinas, uh, Don Quixote, just any, you know, any anything that spoke to me from, uh, from time immemorial that felt like it had endured for a reason. That's the sort of thing that I really just gravitated toward. And as I learned more and more and kind of read uh, voraciously, it was the Greeks that sort of stood out as, you know, they're, they're sort of the OGs in just a lot of different ways, not just some of the ways we tend to name like democracy and uh, all those great sort of political inventions of theirs, but also in a whole host of realms that we don't even necessarily notice. Like, I mean, we'll talk, I'm sure, today about decision making. Um, a lot of our frameworks for thinking about that kind of stuff come from Greek philosophy. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I've always just loved this, that, that face-to-face experience that you get really only from books, since there's some of the communications technology that's been around longest of, you know, digging into these ancient languages and actually communing with people from thousands of years ago. It's, there's something just really profound and awesome to me about that. There, there's such depth in doing that study. You can just go back so far and right. look at, you know, who was the dominant voice in, you know, each of these centuries and just keep going. And my guess is that you begin to see a theme arise in the, the level of thought and truth that they were uncovering. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Even the Greek language, it's sort of funny to say, but a lot of the time when you start to ask profound questions about life, the universe, and everything, things like existence, right? Um, in order to really get cut to the bone of those sorts of things, you have to use Greek words. I mean, the famous example of this is talking about love, that in English, we have this sort of impoverished vocabulary for talking about love, and you have to use one word for, you know, the way you feel toward your spouse, and the way you feel towards your best friend, and the way you feel towards your child. And these are all radically for a, different for a sandwich. forms of... <laughs> Forms of relationships. Yeah, well, exactly. Or like a burger that's particularly like overwhelming yeah. or video games. Yeah. And like these are all totally different forms of relationship. And there are these very subtle ways in Greek of talking about them. Um, but even, yeah, things like essence and being, you know, these are words that come to us distantly from Greek uh, because they were so sharp about uh, thinking through those kinds of fundamental first level questions. Did you did you always find that you were exploring those sorts of thoughts, uh, even just growing up as in, in your household? Did you have those types of discussions, kind of around the dinner <laughs> yeah. table type type thing? You're asking me, have you always been kind of an annoying nerd? And the answer is yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, no, you said that. I didn't say that. I did. <laughs> no, I'm putting words. I'm putting those words in your mouth. I, I will. I will own them uh, until the day I die. I'm a weirdo. I like. I like the questions that occur to me have always been kind of weird. I, I always remember this conversation I had once with my mom in which I'm really bad at remembering people's names. I think, you know, I share this with a lot of people that uh, I'll, I'll shake your hand, I'll look you in the eye, I'll learn your name, and then I'll totally forget. It. But I was like six, I think, and I remember talking to my mom about, why does a name even matter? Like, it's just a series of sounds, you know? Like, it's kind of this 
arbitrary semantic convention that we apply to like individual. <laughs> and yeah, so oh, I mean, and my mother yeah. had to very patiently. <laughs> That's a direct quote was from the Spencer was six. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. At, at, at the age of six. Well, but like, you know, my mother was the patience of a saint had to like sit down and explain, no, it like signals a certain degree of care. So like, yeah, I mean, it's not, I'm not the kind of guy that you would want to fix every problem, but for these sorts of things that just, I just gravitate to them. It is funny. Those things uh, as simple as a name or having names, uh, when we're kids questioning their existence of them, uh, it seems silly and frivolous, but it's like, it, that indicates a level of curiosity that is above, uh, the normal child that's, I guess, wondering uh, what's for dinner. You know, it, it, it is, although there's another aspect of this kind of on the flip side, which is one thing I love about ancient philosophy that you don't get in a lot of modern philosophy is although they are thinking at a very deep level, they're also talking about things that we all encounter all the time and that matter to all of us, like how to be a good friend. And when you do start to ask people about that, like what do you value in a friend, let's say, you know, it it might not immediately come to the surface that people might not walk around thinking about this, but like everybody's doing philosophy about those sorts of questions all the time. And we actually have like operating philosophies, like scripts that are running in the background that we might not examine directly, but that ancient philosophy can help us to sort of bring to the surface, you know, rather than talking about like is yellow square or circle or some really abstract problem. Guys like Aristotle will often go to like, how do I make a virtuous choice in this or that situation? What does it mean to be good at being human? And I do think we kind of all philosophize about that just daily. Yeah, that's a really good point is that there's uh, philosophizing going on all the time, always throughout history. And right, right. now it seems like what's happening in our culture, um, and it feels like everyone's kind of awakening to it at the same time, at least maybe that's only my experience, but um, yeah. awakening to the fact that there's one side of the the table that's philosophizing and saying, hey, we can, let's figure this out together without looking backwards at all. And then the other side of the table, which um, you're certainly well-educated on and the most educated representative that we've spoken to on is saying, well, let's philosophize about these important issues, but look to the past and get their wisdom first. Yeah, I mean, there's such a weird, it's such a weird thing to say, and you're absolutely right. This is very common now to be like, yeah, all the good answers to all the important questions were thought up sometime after like 1850 or so. Like there's a real quote from G.G. Simpson, this paleontologist, and you know, Richard Dawkins uses this a lot, that all the important answers were thought up after Charles Darwin. And what's so funny about this is when you look at the kind of thinking that it kind of ropes people into, you know, oh, our ancestors were evil. Our founding fathers held slaves and therefore America is like foundationally flawed, let's say, or go back further, like the Greeks, right? They didn't give full political rights to women and therefore they have no moral legitimacy. They have no also had slaves. To right. Stand. Yeah. right. Also held slaves like, like most societies throughout most of history. And the thing that's just to, uh, to me, kind of really, uh, it, I, I won't even say that it's illogical, although it is, it's it's just sort of a, a losing proposition. The thing that just doesn't work about that is if you are going to say, oh, it's bad that the founding fathers held slaves, I, I'll agree with you. It is. But there's only one reason that I know that it's bad, and it's because of the founding fathers, who in turn were drawing on these you know, Judeo-Christian traditions. In other words, ideas don't just drop out of the sky. They come to us from somewhere and they're not perfect when they're thought up and we're not perfect ever. And so when you're saying things like, oh, you know, we need to move forward into our bright, liberated future and just get rid of this sort of antiquated, superstitious past. I mean, the words, the literal words coming out of your mouth don't make any sense because concepts like liberation and, you know, the the kind of uh, enlightenment that we're all seeking, those are coming to you from the exact traditions and from the exact history that you now want to condemn and toss out. So on one level, I guess, like I too want a bright liberated future. I just think it lies in exactly the opposite direction from the folks that want to toss out the past. Yeah. Well, you said something that I want to touch on um, that made, made sense to me, but I think would open you up to heavy criticism from the other side, right? Which is 
the only reason I know that slavery was bad was because of the founding fathers. And I can hear it now is all of these yeah. people <laughs> saying, oh, really, Spencer, you 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 wouldn't know? You mean you wouldn't just figure this out on your own? So right. I, I think I know the answer to why that is a silly way of thinking. Um, but yeah. I, I want to hear your explanation of why the criticism that some people have towards past ideas um, and their assumption that they would find the moral path on their own is wrong. So I refer to this as the if I had been there fallacy. And the if I had been there fallacy goes like this. Oh, these backwards generations, these you know people from the past that they did all these nasty bad things. If I had been there, I would have been an abolitionist. I would have been... I mean, people do this with like the story of Jesus, right? Like I would have been one of the ones at the cross, like helping him out. <laughs> and the, the truth of the matter is one thing you learn from studying ancient history is that we are all products of our time. We all live within our historical context. And if you look at the vast sort of sweep of human history and you find that most people at most times in most places have not believed that all men are created equal, then there's a pretty good chance, I hate to break it to you, that if you had been raised in that context, those other backwards benighted eras, you would also not believe that all men are created equal. And so it might not even occur to you to question the moral validity of slavery. I'm not saying slavery wouldn't have been just as wrong back then as it is now and always. I'm just saying that the notion that you are such a virtuous person and you have so much inborn common sense and you are so intuitively connected to the absolute eternal truth that had you been born in any time and any place, you would have just known that all men are created equal. That's the if I had been there fallacy. And it comes from a certain degree of arrogance, but also naivete. It's like, it, I have bad news for you if you think this way. It's that the humans aren't actually all that great. And like, you're not actually all that great. I'm not all that and so, yeah, it does come from this sort of, I mean, sometimes it's sort of smuggled in. People don't, you know, acknowledge it or, or look at this idea. But it's true. It's like if you had been there, you'd probably have been just as bad as those other guys. And it took time and wrestling and effort and blood, sweat, tears for people to figure out. No, actually, if each human being is invested with the image of God, then there are certain moral consequences to that that make slavery an abomination. And, you know, we had to fight wars over this stuff. So the, the idea that, like, you know, the people who wrote the words and signed the words, all men are created equal, those people are somehow less moral and less intuitively connected to the truth than you. And therefore, you get to sit in judgment of over them. It just doesn't hold up. I mean, it's a it's just it's a way of looking at history that just puts way too much faith in your own kind of personal virtue. Yeah, you know, I think the people who take that position, if I had been there, it's a it's a way to sort of get a a badge of virtue without earning it. But it's it's also right. unknowable. You you don't know what you would have done had you been there in nineteen forty four Germany. Uh, you you don't know what you would have done in you know in eighteen hundreds. You know, in in South you know Southern United States, and. The, the the very fact that you and all your friends believe you would have been different, the fact that you and all your friends think that probably would cut against that argument <laughs> that you would have been sign. the one standing alone against the crowd. Uh, exactly. But I, but I think people we, in the past. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, people in the past don't think they're in the past. Right. Right. And so <laughs> right. we look at them and we're like, oh, you know, they've obviously they've made an obviously wrong decision. But the only thing that makes it obviously wrong is the outcome that then occurred, which we don't know when we're in the moment. And so, like, we Great are point. currently living through somebody else's past and somebody's going to look back at us and be like, I can't believe they didn't. You know, I, I can name a few things that I think might look like our great moral atrocities in hindsight that are now perfectly normal and accepted. But even if I acknowledge that I, too, have my blind spots, it's like there might be something that I don't even think about now that somebody a hundred years down the line could look at me and say, I can't believe they ever thought that was okay. I mean, maybe it's like factory farming. Yeah. I don't know. Like I eat a ton of meat that probably people will be like, I can't believe anyone ever thought you could treat animals that so way. So re really good decision-making point is uh, there's a temptation to judge decisions based on their outcome. And uh, like a uh, really, really good example of this is football fans, 
right? You went for it on fourth. Coach went for it on fourth down. They didn't make it. It was obvious. He's a gone for it. He's an idiot. He should have kicked a field goal. Well, you only say that because it didn't work. You know, you don't know the myriad of reasons what defensive alignment they had, the sprained knee that your running back had, all of the different stats that went and analytics that went into the decision to go for it. No, it doesn't matter. They didn't make it, so therefore they did the wrong thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to see the if I had been there fallacy at work, just sit with a bunch of guys watching a football game, right? Yes, they're all saying that all the time. If I were the coach, if I were the quarterback, if I were doing this. Thing, yeah, whatever. I think that's a, that's important for people to recognize is this I have been there fallacy exists on big picture issues and really small issues. And it's it's a huge impediment to growing in our own decision making capabilities, right? Because every time yeah. I do that, I'm missing a lesson. Now, you might be able to look back at the decisions that other people made, whether it's the founding fathers' decisions to write, decision to write down all men are created equal while they had slaves at their own plantation, or the decision yeah. of, you know, Jason Garrett to run for it on fourth. Day. Jason Garrett. Jason Garrett. Garrett. I say Jason Garrett. <laughs> 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 Pulling up 1990. Oh, Whatever. My point uh, is that, that, that inhibits your ability to learn from their mistake. Yeah, maybe it is a mistake, but instead of saying, hey, I would have done it different, say, well, what you know, what would have caused them to do it this way? And then mm. maybe you can learn something. What would the rationale be? And then we can learn something that way. I'm interested to hear, Spencer, from your perspective, what do you think those things are that we in our culture now will be judged for in the future uh, when we become somebody else's past? Uh, as What are those moral failings that we're currently exhibiting? Uh, well, the big one. We only have an hour, be... by the way. So, you know. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want. It's in the original Disney Lion King. Uh, Scar asks Zazu something like, you know, why don't people like me? And Zazu says, do you want the short list or the long? <laughs> and I that's how I always feel with this. I'm like, do you want the short list or the long? Um, well, I mean, the big one, and this is going to probably be controversial but it's implied by my faith and just by my metaphysical convictions also i think the big one is is abortion um i think it's you know the elective termination of pregnancies uh, especially healthy pregnancies but um you know there are others like covid i think is a really interesting one where we all sort of lived through a situation in which at least one side of certain debates was doing something atrocious and thought that it was very much in the right right like even if you say we don't yet know like whether it was right or wrong to lock people down um you know that means that half of the country essentially was not just accepting but powerfully and passionately advocating on pain of harsh moral censure like powerfully and passionately saying no you need to shut your business or you're killing grandma right and so there's actually no escape from the if I had been there fallacy on on that one. <laughs> you were there. People, yeah, everybody right? was there. Yeah, you were there, yeah, right? Let's, and, let's and see and what you did. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that's one. Yeah, I think of, you know, abortion. I, I actually, I mentioned factory farming. So, you know, abortion is not one that I par- uh, participate in and I feel sort of like comfortable condemning it. But uh, factory farming is one that I think it's actually quite possible. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a vegan by any means. I'll never be a vegetarian. I think we're meant to eat animals. Um, but the way we treat animals and the way that I personally, like, you know, benefit from and consume food that was really horrendously mistreated when it was alive. And um, I think I might look back on that in horror yeah. even in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. That's, um, yeah. So you're more optimistic than I am. But first, yeah, but you only came up with two, <laughs> three. You had three things. I mean, yeah. You know, <laughs> well, what are some of yours? Off the top of what my would, head. What would, you, what would you name? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know that my list would be any different than that. Um, okay. But I, I, that's more of an aspirational list for me. I, I, I don't see us trending in the direction of, uh, I, I, I can easily see where we look and criticize factory farming because I think that the, more than half of the country would already say that's bad, you know, yeah. already, even even if they're not going to do prepared to do anything about it. I, I don't know yeah. that more than half of the country, um, there's no consensus on abortion and there's no consensus on um, the lockdowns. Maybe that will change. Yeah. I hope it does. Do you? No, I think we will. But I think that our, our, uh, our, progeny uh the generations after us our children and our children's children will, will look back 
uh, with with harsh harsh judgment for us for us so, about that. And yeah, do you do you believe that because you can? See, are there certain things happening in society that you think are trending us in that direction to to condemn it, or, or do you believe we will condemn it in the future because it's wrong and the truth always prevails? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I it's some combination of, I mean, I do have a kind of eschatological view of history in that I believe there is a God and that ultimately we are trending toward the truth prevailing. But that's a very long ultimately. Um, and that's not really what I mean when I say I have a sort of intuition that within a few generations, this sort of thing will become apparent. And I suppose it has to do with the screaming obviousness of some of the logical contradictions that are now on display. I mean, it now seems like we've accelerated into this place where people are digging into, in my view, totally morally untenable positions, such as that a human being is merely a clump of cells up until he exits the womb. And I, I guess I feel like, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas has this line, a small error in the beginning makes a big error in the end. And I think that when you are looking at, you know, a tiny zygote, then it's possible to, it's difficult to discern what you're looking at. And it's possible to take a range of, you know, make, give a range of answers to the question, is this a life? But as you follow on the logic of certain first order principles, you then, you know, the, the paths diverge more and more. Like if you say yes or no, maybe it's kind of a the coin flip at the level of a couple cells. And then this, this being grows and you start to ask, well, where actually does life enter into this physical entity? Um, and then you end up in this position where you have like a sitting Supreme Court justice saying that a fetal heartbeat or, you know, the recoiling from pain is essentially akin to like a switch flipping in a toaster. And at that point, I think you've really, as they say among Marxists, heightened the contradictions. Um, so I suppose the alternative here is that we're simply going to collapse into total depravity. Um, but the other route is that at some point, these arguments simply don't hold up and uh, we live through a sea change and, and we look back in horror at what we've done. Yeah, I, I think that when we look at that issue, it's got to yeah. be where you where you come from, and that if you think, well, when does life enter in? You, you're having to say, well, what it, what is life? Does that mean sustainability yeah. outside the womb? Does that mean uh, that that God has touched that person and their their soul is now part of that being? What what do you mean when you say yeah. that? Um, and and so I, I think that that's a really tough question to wrestle with, and I have my own yeah. views on that. That it's that it starts kind of right off the bat. And mm -hmm. that on that and so many other issues, they they are as much as we hate to admit it, they are black and white. They are there is no middle ground on it. I I wouldn't think, and I, I think there's other issues that uh, fall into that that category that that we wrestle with that people want to sort of navigate through. It seems like well, just well, sorry, they don't on. want to stand on truth and just say, well, you know, how about this and how about that, and they're they're willing to negotiate i have this feeling like a lot of the uh, a lot of the hot button issues that we're facing as a culture have become more and more black and white issues yes i i, I agree with that what do you think is and causing it, it, that or or why why do you think that is well you know that phenomenon that you guys were just referring to that you know when one of the the benefits but also the dangers of of chasing an issue down to its sort of foundational philosophical rudiments um is that you end up with questions which are very stark um questions like is there absolute truth or is there not right yeah um, there's no halfway house answer yeah. to that question right no, that's um, that's my point yeah. yeah yes and and so this is why um you know, I, I, I guess we're talking in some respects about my, my book, How to Save the West. Um, and the subtitle of my book is Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, um, which when you say that, it immediately sounds like, oh, it's the COVID crisis. It's the economy crisis. It's what we hear about a million crises. But there's a very specific word uh, meaning to that word. It's a Greek word, crisis. And it comes from the verb krino, which means I judge or I make a decision. Um, and so an actual honest to goodness bona fide grade a crisis isn't when things just happen to be going very badly it's when you're faced with 
two fundamentally irreconcilable choices, two different ways of looking at the world. And on the abortion question, I think another factor that speaks to decision, principles of decision-making at the high and the low level would be um, it shows how radically conversations are conditioned by the questions that you answer, that you ask at the beginning. Um, and this is one reason why the two sides of the abortion debate so often speak entirely past one another, is that they are loudly saying answers to two fundamentally different questions. Um, and, you know, maybe I would say this because I'm on the pro-life side, but I think the pro-life uh, team acknowledges this and is trying to say, no, it's actually not of course, a woman has a right to bodily autonomy. Of course, that's an inalienable right that she has. Um, what we're talking about is a case in which her body is not at issue, but somebody else's body. And so then it's actually the question is, when does life begin? And that question, right, becomes this, it sharpens down to this point um, where, unfortunately, much as we might like to kind of balance the two options, um, it's that's not an option. That's not a, a route that's available to us on on the table. And in some ways, it's very good to ask those questions, which because they are the the fundamental questions. You have to ask them first before you can start to get into the gray areas and the and the nuanced issues. And I think that's that's what's happening to our politics. It's a long way of answering your question. Like our, our politics is zeroing in on these fundamental first order questions to which there is only one or the other answer. Yeah, and I think there's so many times when we get to issues like that, these important points where decisions have to be made, I, I think there's a yeah. deflection that I often see where people will say, well, you, you know, Spencer, as a as a male, you, you really can't speak to this issue. Or they'll try yeah. to minimize a viewpoint so that debate is, is stopped and their viewpoint yeah. or their perspective prevails. And, and I think that that is another way to sort of get around truth or create an, an obje a subjective truth, that this is my mm -hmm. belief in what truth is. And because of where I'm coming from, your belief in what truth is has no merit. Uh, and, and so it violates the, the very discussion that you ought to be having, which is what is the objective truth? Let's, let's both come at this. And if their truth is truth, then... Uh, your particular identity doesn't uh, have any relevance on whether or not truth is truth. Mm. Well, right. I think this is a confusion. It rests on a confusion between like data uh, that you might or might not have based on your standpoint and your perspective. Uh, that, that's on the one hand versus, um, yeah, absolute kind of philosophical uh, level debates about absolute truth as 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 sure. you're indicating um it is actually the case and i'm open to the argument that as a man there are things that i don't have direct experience of um but guess what like i also don't have direct experience of like vietnam because i've never been there right it doesn't follow that i have no way of knowing about or talking about truths to do with Vietnam. I, I believe quite firmly, for instance, um, that Vietnam is a place on earth and that <laughs> if I went there and stood on the ground, I wouldn't collapse, fall into the sea, right? Um, and I would be very surprised if simply by virtue of only having secondhand knowledge about Vietnam. But really, you're, um, you're not I, a geologist. You don't know that. Yeah, I'm, not a, exactly, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an astronomer. I mean, this is the expertism that we're up against, right? This thing where, like, unless you're an expert, you can't speak to something is like the kind of scientific uh, analog to this identity politics thing where unless you actually inhabit... Which it, it's a, a, a real, it's a real interesting um, argumentative tactic that they employ to say, well, you're not an yeah. expert on this. Um, but at the same time, the world should conform to my subjective standard of morality. Based on the experts I've talked to. Yeah, yeah like, how, well, how come I get to pick anything? <laughs> Um, right at all. How can how, if I if I you know what I don't get it, but yeah. Well, I mean, again, you know, you you might actually have data if you know the the women in my life. Just as a side note on the abortion question, right? The women in my life have given me a lot of information that I would never have had uh, just on my own steam. 
Um, and by the way, a lot of it has moved me more in the pro-life direction because the women in my life are very pro-life and it's out of their experience that they became pro-life. For instance, uh, since she's talked about this publicly, I can say my sister suffered a terrible miscarriage and that experience persuaded her that what was in her womb was life that was lost. Um, and so it's like whose experience actually gets to count as the authoritative experience. A, this stuff always breaks down when you say, well, okay, here's a woman that doesn't think what quote unquote women say. Um, because really what they're saying is not like you can't have an opinion about this because of your identity category. Um, what they're saying is you can't have an opinion about this full stop. Debate is closed. And if we can't actually share our experiences and then come together to an understanding of the truth, um, then debate is closed. And we're totally fundamentally unintelligible to one another. If there's nothing I can say to you that's going to get your experience in my mind, nothing you can say to me, vice versa, um, then that's a situation where we actually just have to either come to blows or uh, part ways. And like that's kind of the situation that they are demanding when they say you can't have an opinion about this. It's not like if you were a woman or black or whatever they're asking you to be and you said the same thing, they still wouldn't accept it. It's just that this is a way of kind of shutting off the possibility that there might be some conversation to be had. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's certainly something to it that somebody is going to bring a certain perspective to a debate that's that's unique um, mm -hmm. based on their life experience. But uh, that's not to discount other perspectives that may be based on truth or, or observation that may be valuable in the discussion. So I have a question for you. When we look at these issues that we're talking about in and we were talking earlier about the level of discourse and discussions that we have now uh, wrestling with big issues. And how much of that is crowded out? How much of these thoughtful discussions get crowded out now because of the other information that we have coming at us, social media and entertainment and so forth? And do you think that that's why we have fewer discussions about these important topics? Or do you think that because of the human existence and our uh, acceptance of settled debate in theory that has sort of traveled through the centuries, we don't mm. have to is anymore? In other words, 2,000 years ago, they really had to wrestle with some big issues. What does it take to be virtuous? Yeah. And, and maybe now we sort of have distilled that and we understand it. Maybe that's why we're not having the discussions. Or do you think there has been a decline in that and that's why we're not having the discussions yeah basically what i think is that those sorts of questions like what does it take to be virtuous it's not that we never make progress in them it's that each new era gives us new challenges to apply those ideas to um and we're in an era that is to say the internet era in which um, the shape of our world has changed drastically. And, you know, when you're talking about, here we are on a podcast about decision-making, right? Um, the way the ancients talk about decision-making, or at least the way Aristotle, my personal favorite philosopher on this topic, talks about decision-making, is that you have such a thing as kind of absolute truth. You have the good, the virtuous, the beautiful, um, and then you have the world, which is constantly changing, is only partially known to us, and involves all sorts of choices between an array of options which might not be so black and white. So we've just been talking about the realm where things are black and white. Something's either, you know, virtuous or it's not. Some end is good or not. And, and yet, you know, in the here and now, in the practical world of decision making, um, we have to ask how those black and white answers to first questions play out in terms of kind of gray area answers to what am I going to do about this? Like, oh, my, you know, uh, car broke down on the side of the road, but there's somebody that needs my help. What am I going to do? Um, and these sorts of things, they require what the Greeks would have called phrenesis. And phrenesis is like the bridge between thinking and doing. It's the specific virtue that translates eternal truths into moment-to-moment -moment applications. Um, and the, each different scenario, right, requires a different form of translation because there's 
things that just radically change on the ground. And you have to actually sit back and think, well, how am I going to apply this stuff to this this modern situation? Um, and so I guess what I would say is the internet has put us in a position where um, it's not that the you know fundamental truths have changed. Um, it's that we really desperately need to recover and remember those truths so that we can think about how we're going to act in this radically new time. We think that it's made those ancient truths less relevant and valuable, but it's actually made them much more urgent. Um, and at the same time, the last bit I'll say is that, of course, we've been told again and again that all those old dead guys are evil and wrong, <laughs> so who needs to read them anyway? Uh, that doesn't help either. Right. Well, I, I think the moral truth is is part of that first crisis you were talking about in the, in the book, which yeah. I really enjoyed reading, by the way. Yeah, can oh, you walk us you. through yeah. what those five crises are? Yeah, right. That's that's what I was going to say. Is that first one is is reality, the crisis of reality. So yeah. you kind of share that. Yeah. Well, the first one I we've been discussing actually this idea of like my truth and your truth, right? Um, because as we got to talking about it, we started to realize even just you know here in this setting that there's actually only two options here. Either um, your truth and my truth are kind of like inaccessible. And as a man, you can never speak to or understand my experience as a woman. As a black person, I can never experience or understand your experience because I'm white, you're, those sorts of things. Um, that if, if that's true, then there's really no such thing as discussion. There's just sort of shouting very loudly at one another until one of us turns out to be more powerful. Um, and so the only other alternative is that actually there exists some common and absolute and eternal standard of truth. Um, and the choice between those two options is the reality crisis. Is there objective reality or is there not? Uh, so that's the first section of the book deals with that. Um, crisis number two, the crisis of the body, um, is kind of about that stuff we were starting to talk about just now of how do you take these big, if there is absolute truth and if there is the you know world beyond um, how do you take that and live that out in this very imperfect and kind of confusing world where we inhabit these bodies that break down and die? Um, and wouldn't it be nice if we could just kind of get rid of all this altogether? Um, I think you see this now in the transhuman stuff, uh, the transgender stuff that we're dealing with, which, by the way, I didn't mention that as one of the things we'll look back in uh, horror at. But this is an, an obvious addition to the long list is the way that we mutilate children in the name of this need to get out of the kind of messy, difficult world of the here and now in the flesh. Um, and if only we could just be the sort of magical uh, gender identity that we have in our head, then we would be free. And um, that's, I argue, a very ancient idea. It goes back to the Neoplatonists, at least. Um, and it's the wrong idea. The right idea for the body crisis is that actually the uh, eternal and the momentary are fused together. We are embodied souls. We're kind of uh, spirits written in the language of flesh, if you like. And um, that's the second portion is the body crisis. And then uh, the next two crises are sort of two sides of the same coin. They're uh, meaning and religion. And they both have to do with the question, is there something outside of uh, our human experience, something beyond the here and now um, that can kind of ground our experiences? Um, and might that thing be God or might it not? Um, and I argue in the book that it is God. Um, and then finally, the the fifth one, the crisis of the regime is about politics, about how do all of these things play out on our kind of national scale um, and what might we do about it uh, in as Americans in 2023? I think that the answer is obviously God. And anybody that pushes back on that is going to replace God with something that resembles God, but using different words to describe. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm delighted to hear you say that because I think that has to be true. I think the evidence of our own two eyes at this point is making this abundantly apparent. I saw somebody just the other day on Twitter saying something like, AI is going to be great. We're building God. Um, but, you know, you, you watch the way people participate in politics now, kneeling and begging for absolution at Black Lives Matter rallies, lighting prayer candles, building golden statues of Donald Trump. I mean, whatever, like you name it. It doesn't have to be all like, you know, it's not all right-wing hobby horse. It's like everybody is doing stuff um, in the name of what they hope will be a transcendent experience. Um, the science, right? Trust the science. Dr. Fauci re represents the science and he is its priest, amen, you know? 
these are religious ways of of operating. Yeah, and, and speaking I, of I, old guys yeah. figuring things out, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs put transcendence at the top for a very uh, good reason. It's like we never stopped looking for it. And and you can uh, reject God and you can reject Christianity, you can reject the fundamental tenets of our civilization, and then still find yourself seeking transcendence. And and that's where we are as a society, as I think, in all of these issues. Is that's In a way, that's what transgenderism is, is seeking a way to, without God, how can I, yeah. how, without God, how can I transcend? How can I transcend? Well, like, try that way. <laughs> it's like asking, yeah, without bread, how can I make a sandwich? Like, it's, it's a contradiction in terms, in some sense, because once you talk about transcendence, you are talking about God, it's just a question of what you're going to put in that role. I mean, again, to, to talk about making decisions, it's like even just waking up in the morning and you decide, like, am I going to get a better? Am I going to hit the snooze button? Um, what's the first thing that determines which of those you're going to do? Well, an ancient answer would be it's your purpose. It's your telos. It's the reason why you would do anything. Like the, the reason for getting out of bed is what? Well, it's to make myself a cup of coffee. So what's the reason for that? And you go down this chain until you finally arrive at something where it's like, well, this is good just because. This is my purpose. My purpose is, I don't know, to make as much money as possible, or it's to benefit humanity, or it's to fight climate change, whatever. Somewhere you're going to end down the line at a thing that transcends all other purposes and that determines the shape of all your other decisions. And that thing, whether you know it or not, is your God. It is the thing that you will bend the knee to in the end because it is higher as a good than anything else you're trying to pursue. Um, and so this is why I, I love this line from the Psalms, the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, because for a long time, I being myself an idiot was like, oh, this just means that atheists are dumb. <laughs> Which like, fair enough, right? Um, but of course, uh, Atheists are just about as dumb as all the rest of us. Like, that's actually not what the line is. The line, I think, is saying, if you tell yourself that you don't have a God, that there's nothing in that slot where I do this because it's good for its own sake, right? I bend the knee to this. If you think that you're not doing that, then you're a fool. You don't understand the most basic, fundamental, first-level thing about you and everything you do. And so you've basically engaged in an act of total self-deception. It's made you blind to yourself and the world around you. And that's why you're a fool. It's because you think that you aren't worshiping. And all that does is it makes you a chump for the most kind of for the cheapest possible forms of religion. So the real question isn't like, am I going to worship? It's what's worthy of my worship? What what deserves? Yeah, what am I already worshiping? What yeah, am I already worshiping too. now? And then maybe what should I be? Yeah, 100% yeah, exactly. agree. And, and like in a way that's what that's um two things occurred to me listening uh, to your answer there is one is that's exactly my experience as a financial advisor that is how I help people with their money is to say in a way hey. what is the god that you are worshiping now oh, and then let's find yeah. a way to use your money to continue to to serve that purpose. And so we'll start this off and early on in a relationship ask people like Hey, what's important about your money to you? What what do you want to do with your money? And and most people have a very surface level answer, right? Just like you said, what's my purpose for waking up? Well, it's to make a cup of coffee. Most people will say, what's the purpose of my money? Well, it's to make more money, right? Well, that's yeah. that's not it. To buy stuff, yeah. yeah. That, and it's right. and it's not to exactly. buy stuff. And it's and it's not it, it like ten answers in, we might get close to something that resembles the real answer, maybe. And, but it yeah. re really, it's like a deep. Um, a deep search for what that answer really is that is ongoing yes, yes. And, and, it, and it may change and it may take a long time to figure out the true answer but if we can try to find that answer out try to aim toward that answer ultimately find it locate it and serve it then you're going to be using your money properly um, and then the second realization I had listening to you was that throughout this podcast uh, you know we started with this idea of we want to help people make better decisions and we want to make better decisions in our own life. So let's learn from as, as diverse of a cast of characters as we can, how we can improve upon our decision-making abilities. And maybe that'll be helpful for people. And I think as we've progressed through it, it's, 
it, we've become, at least I have become more in line with what you just said, which is that obviously the answer is God. The answer to all of these questions is God, because the answer for how can I make better decisions, the deeper I go, you know, I start at level one is, well, I, you know, I might need to organize things, uh, when, you know, I might need to make a pro con list, right? Well, I might need yeah. to find a purpose. I might need to find a meaning. Well, if I finding a purpose and finding meaning, what, what could that purpose be? What would make a purpose good if I were to have one? And then once yeah. you go down that road far enough, the answer is obviously that it has to be God. Yeah. So this is, there's a lot in what you just said that is, I think, really, really wonderful. And something which comes to mind uh, from this Aristotelian way that we're talking um, is this interesting thing that Aristotle says about that that purpose, right? The thing, what's your money for? Well, it's to pay for this. Well, what's that for? Well, it's to do this or whatever. Um, he says, interestingly, we, we don't actually deliberate about ends. We deliberate about means. Um, and I think what he means by this is in, in any choice that you're making, um, the process of trying to choose what you're going to do is actually already in reference to some good. It's already there. And when you start to raise your head up above the sort of like immediate question in front of you, um, then you realize that that thing which is in that that highest position, um, you, you don't get to actually choose whether it's good or not. It just is or it isn't. Um, and so we don't, we don't deliberate about ends. We discern the end, right? We discern what is best to choose and to aim your ship at. Um, and of course, the thing that is going to be best to aim your ship at in the end is going to be the, the highest good, the good of all goods. But I think that this is something which is so baked into the way we live our lives already, right? The choices that we make. Um, it's so baked in that people don't even see it. Like they, it takes a long time to make people even realize that they're already pursuing some end and then to think about, you know, what would be good to put in that role that won't enslave me, but will set me free. Were there uh, in your research, when we think about decision making, you know, I like the idea right. of that first crisis and and understanding reality and its moral truth, and using that as a basis and framework for decision making. I, I think that's that's really right. uh, fantastic. And obviously, you know, what we were just talking about about having that that uh, that true meaning and that original meaning of of God. Uh, using that as a framework and finding your higher meaning as a framework for decision-making. When you were doing your research, did, did a certain philosopher stand out as having a unique insight into decision-making or that you found particularly helpful? I mean, uh, yeah, you, you, you mentioned know, Aristotle, but it, I'm sure there were others. Well, right, yeah. Um, we, we've been talking about Aristotle a lot because I think he's kind of the OG on this mm -hmm. stuff but it's actually um there is another school of philosophy that's very popular right now um that has i think a lot to say about this and that's um stoicism yeah you know, we people talk about the stoics right um and what the stoics bring to the table which they're famous for of course is is your relationship to your emotions right what do your emotions actually have to give you um and 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 when can you disregard them um and to sort of boil it down, you know, people, of course, love the Marcus Aurelius meditations. And one of the great things about that book is he's always asking himself, like, what about this situation can I change? Um, and if there's something that I can change for the better, then my emotions are going to help me to see it. If this thing yeah. arouses indignation in me, if I'm furious at the state of the world, um, well, you know, it, it may be that you're simply having an emotional reaction, something that's totally out of your control, or it may be that there's kind of an antenna going off um, that's going to kind of lead you toward this more rational consideration about about what to do and how. I mean, the the version of this that I I'll always think about from the modern day is like, let's say you decide that you want to, uh, you're deciding whether you want to uh, keep your virginity until um, that's a question about ends, right? It's not, it's, it's about whether or not that would be good. And so you're having to discern and sit in a place of kind of contemplation and consult the tradition and your parents and whatever. Um, the time to make that decision is not in the backseat of a car at 2 a.m. after a wine cooler. Why is that? It's because you are then going to be uh, surrounded by a kind of chaotic 
horde of emotions, right? There's all these things that pull you in all these different directions um, that are going to give you all these confusing signals. And so the Stoics would say, find in yourself the place where um, the only sorts of emotions you are able to listen to, where you can drown out the voice of the things that have nothing to do with the decision you're trying to make. Um, and and seek the voice of the good as it expresses itself to you in in the form of uh, of love, right? Because of course the, the proper relationship to the good, the proper relationship to God is is love. Um, and so the question is, what's the kind of emotional condition where you can train in yourself to drown out the other voices um, and and seek what is good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I I like that a lot. The uh, this the sto I had to like chuckle when you said the Stoics because the the internet subculture like surrounding yeah. stoicism right now is hilarious it's a bunch of young dudes who've like replaced christianity with stoicism and yeah and marcus aurelius is is replaced christ and it's like this religious almost weird um uh love affair that they've got with the stoics not to say it's not good it's a lot of wonderful philosophy it's just like it, i uh i chuckle when i see guys um like me who've like it is their Bible, man. I mean, oh, dude, yeah. Well, so it's funny. I, in addition to How to Save the West, I have another book out uh, called Gateway to the Stoics, and it's just a sort of selection of, you know, Stoic teachings. Um, but I wrote this forward to it, kind of introducing who these guys were and what they were about. And to to do that, the research for that involved a ton of like scrolling r slash Stoicism to just sort of yeah. see what. Because they're all these guys. I mean, you know, there's there's sort of higher level versions of this, like Ryan Holiday and Massimo Pagliucci and these sort of like self help guys that write about it. But then there's just this enormous, like you say, online culture, you know, gym bros and finance guys and whatever who are like, yeah, the 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 key to absolute truth is is in stoicism. And what's super interesting is um, if you chase them down to like I I scrolled through a lot of Reddit posts about like what do you do with the metaphysical content of stoicism. Because Stoicism has an enormous yeah. metaphysics, a cosmology um, that has to do with the Logos, and which actually St. Paul sort of draws on when he's preaching in Athens. He says, you know, your own poets say that we are the children of Zeus. Well, I'm telling you we're the children of God. Um, and that's because he knew that Stoicism had this sort of awareness, even if it wasn't complete, this awareness of an order throughout all of time and space in the heavens. Um, and the, the guys on r slash Stoicism basically won't touch this stuff. They, they, they're like, this doesn't help me. It's not whatever. So it, it very much is what you're saying. It's like a kind of secularization. It's trying to get the things that Christianity will give you um, through any other means because the church is so uncool or, or whatever. Yeah, the, just, the, the lack of coolness in the church, uh, I think mm. it makes people reject a lot of the things that we are talking about today that yeah. are true. And why people yep. choose to embrace Stoicism as this sort of pseudo-religion of their own in the modern era, um, for whatever reason, for a lot of people, God, the the idea, the traditional idea of the Christian God is off-putting. And, you know, I went through a period of my life where it was off-putting to me. I, I can't say what makes it off-putting for each and individual person, but it's off-putting to some people. And I, I the biggest thing that helped me was to realize, you know, I don't have to, it doesn't have to be, um, my relationship to God and with God does not have to be what I think that other person who I don't like in the church is telling me that it has to be. It doesn't have to be what I perceive that guy's relationship to God and with God is. It doesn't have to be right. that. And so when we say God, we're talking about, well, what is the highest good that could possibly exist in the universe? What is the good that is above all goods? Think about it that way. That was a way of thinking that transformed my relationship with God, my understanding of God. Um, and I think if people thought about it, it to your point earlier, there's so much of, of what we're saying is already embedded in the culture that we miss it. We don't speak it into existence. And because we don't speak yeah. it, people don't think about it and then they reject yeah. it. Um, I would I would say, by the way, one big component of why isn't the church cool? Why do we dislike it? Or why do people flee from it? Um, it has to do with manliness. And that's 100%. why stoicism is the uh, kind of counter drug it's the thing that people yeah. turn to that appeals more because stoicism is among the manliest of philosophies and, yeah. and affirms manhood as a positive and christianity in rightly understood does so as well i i firmly believe but the christian church especially in america um has kind of turned into like the church of niceness a lot of the time 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so guys think that they have to basically check their aspirations to like valor and courage at the door. And that's a huge problem. That's why we're, that's why the Stoics are eating our lunch basically is because we, we can't talk about that or affirm it. Um, and it also makes us vulnerable to all of the kind of screaming harpies we've been talking about on this show where it's like, oh, we have to be nice. We don't want to upset anybody's feelings. It's like, no, actually this might be a time and a era in history that calls for vigorous and manly, manful statement of the truth without qualification. Um, and if the church can do that, then I think all those, uh, all those Reddit bros will be over here in a heartbeat. But you know, I think you're right, Spencer. Uh, I think problem. that yeah. you you nailed the diagnosis of the problem. Um, do you think? And this is the last question I'll ask before we go. What do you think the one decision that the church could make um, to combat that problem? What do you What do you think that is? Yeah, I I think, you know, there's a lot of this that you will see already among some churches that like um, guys that are like on Instagram or that don't really have necessarily like a, a, a mainstream pulpit. You know, there's the sort of David French's of the world uh, who are kind of preaching the, the gospel of niceness. Um, but then there are, I think, kind of more muscular forms of Christianity going on online. But honestly, I think the big thing if i if i were running a church which is like far from what's happening but if i were running a church i i would want uh to establish groups and activities which look absolutely nothing like your typical small group in church in a kind of american protestant situation um that look like going hunting that look like you know more sort of like Obviously, there are men's groups and women's groups, like more direct, like sex segregation. You go hunting, you do this or that, um, and and you need to be able to talk forthrightly about stuff that Christians now are very embarrassed about. And I think it's a cultural thing. I think it has to do with like you have to find leaders who are going to be willing to do that. And uh, you know, men talk best when they're doing activities rather than like let's sit down and have a sort of heart to heart or whatever. Um, so I guess if I were running a church, I would say like yeah, there's there's a a men's group that whatever they go boxing or they do this or that it's like a team a football team and so whatever um and then you have to actually like talk about things uh without pretending like you are some kind of clean spotless virginal pure because like you know i know men i am one we're animals like there's stuff in our heads that like you never feel comfortable talking about in in most churches but i think you need to i think you need to be able to do that so that you can then cultivate healthy masculinity healthy man um and and like have groups of guys that can get together and support one another in that. Oh, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. And you, when you look at, if it's any encouragement at all, I I see those things that you just described emerging in the in the churches that I observe and and uh, connect with, yeah. and also a a more clarity in the ability to speak truth seems yeah. to be emerging and so i don't i don't think it's on the decline i think i think there's this re-emerging that's starting to happen and and maybe it'll filter out through the rest of uh where we're going so i i hope so i hope it continues but i i really appreciate yep. you spending time with us spencer tell us where we can get in contact with you uh get the book how to save the west which is a, a great read uh it's not it's awesome. not a light read it's not a uh <laughs> sit, sit on the beach and read that uh bring your <laughs> bring your highlighter is what i would say on that one uh, yes, but it is a short read, if that's any consolation. It's not super long. Um, and it's good. Yes, it's How to Save the West. You get it wherever you get books, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, online. I did read the audiobook myself, so if you've got Audible and if you prefer to sit and listen to stuff, you know, a lot of people uh, like it better that way. That's also available. Um, there's also Gateways to the Stoics, which I mentioned. And I'm on Twitter for my sins at Spencer Clavin, <laughs> and so you can find me there i do things like recklessly tweet out the greatest intellectual of every century in just one long twitter list and then throw that as a scrap of meat to the dogs and let them fight over it so it's a fun time yeah thanks again for being here this is a great book uh great commentary and uh yeah i agree Uh, thanks a lot spencer awesome thank you both it's been a pleasure What struck me was when he looked at the question that we talked about, about when facing a decision, what about the situation can I change? Asking that question that helps sort of pull emotion out of the decision-making process and then replacing it with seeking the voice of good. 
so that you're making a decision about what you can change and not about the things you can't, but what about the things that you can change, removing the emotion of it and replacing that with seeking the good. And I thought that was really a good perspective. My biggest takeaway was the, I, if I had been there fallacy that Spencer talked about, um, how we can apply that towards big decisions and small decisions. So, you know, he used the classic example of if I had been there, I would have opposed slavery. Um, and, and I think that's an example of a logical fallacy that we can all recognize, but it also is applicable in small cases. We use the example of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, but we do that in our own life. Like whether we're um, in a business who might say, well, geez, I wouldn't have done what the CEO did, you know, or I wouldn't have done what my boss did, or I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have made that decision that uh, whoever it is that has authority over me made. It's easy to criticize when you're not burdened with the responsibility and you don't have to make the decisions in real time. And you can judge afterwards with the outcome, <laughs> with the with the knowledge and wisdom that the outcome provides. So I would say that my biggest takeaway is to resist the temptation to do that because doing it robs you of an opportunity to learn and develop your own decision-making abilities. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.